We're going to be in Genesis 48 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, one of my favorite hymns, one of my favorite all-time hymns is the hymn, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow by Ira Stanfill. Uh, he was born in the early <clears throat> 20th century. He was a minister, and uh, he, he, the, one of the things I appreciate about the hymn in particular is the refrain that goes like this, and, and you'll see how it ties into our message in a little bit. Uh, but the refrain in the hymn says, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. And he, was, he, he wrote that hymn in the midst of some of his own great personal grief. In 1948, I believe it was, his wife divorced him. He was a, he was a man in the ministry, and that was a time and age in which divorce was uh, just something that you didn't do. It was the sort of thing that didn't happen. And so those words, right, I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand, his confidence is not coming because he knows the circumstances that tomorrow will bring, but he knows the one that holds those circumstances and the one who holds him. His words are a nice snapshot of what we see in the life of Jacob today at this point in his story near his final breaths, right, on his, on his deathbed. Even still, he is looking forward in faith. He is rooted in the experience of God's, uh, God's faithfulness. Now, <clears throat> if you were here the last time I filled in, uh, we preached from Genesis 32, and we saw the story of Jacob uh, returning to, to re-enter the promised land and having the wrestling match with the angel of the Lord uh, on, his, on his way back into the promised land. In Genesis 37, the story picks up with Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, uh, seemingly as, as, as one of the lead characters, Jacob does no longer appears to be, to be front and center. And yet, uh, towards the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob reemerges into the foreground uh, of the story. And he's got important lessons for Joseph. He's got important lessons uh, for us. Obviously, in between that time and, and where we're going to pick up today, uh, Joseph is betrayed into slavery uh, in Egypt by his brothers. And, and uh, through the course of many years in Egypt, he eventually becomes... Pharaoh's right-hand man, so to speak, interpreting Pharaoh's dream, advising him to store up the, the seven years of grain and the years of abundance for preparation uh, for provision for the people in the seven years of famine. And <clears throat> then eventually the rest of his family has to come to Egypt for food and Joseph makes uh, provision for them. The Jacob that we see, so, so that was the reason for kind of wanting to go with the Genesis 48 uh, sermon, right, this morning. How does Jacob's, we saw, we saw a hinge moment in Jacob's story last time. How does his story end? He's a different man uh, from the, from the, we in, was collecting at his, daughter self-inflicted they were self-inflicted wounds if we were to look at the game tape of Jacob's life we would see a lot of fumbles but here at the end as with Genesis 32 he is almost literally in the grip of grace and he's finishing well right he's finishing really really well one of the fascinating things about our passage this morning and I'm so thankful that our scripture reading this morning came from Hebrews chapter 11. One of the fascinating things about this passage in Genesis 48 is that when Hebrews 11 singles out the, the preeminent example of Jacob's life of faith, 
We read it just a moment ago in verse 21. It highlights this passage, right? Hebrews 11:21 says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And knowing all that we know about the, the life of Jacob and his story, we may wonder why the author of Hebrews selected this event, right? This We'll see in a minute. He crosses his hands to bless his grandsons on his deathbed, and we think, why is that the preeminent example that the author of Hebrews selects for us from the like of Jacob? It seems, it seems fairly tame compared with the ladder of angels in Genesis 28 or the wrestling match with God in Genesis 32. Well, Hebrews 11 portrays faith in particular as that which lays hold of God's promises and God's character, even when the outcome of those promises can't be fully seen yet. This kind of faith leans into the assurance of future grace, not because it's certain of all the details that tomorrow holds, but because it's confident in the one who holds tomorrow, and in this case, the one who holds Jacob's hand. That's why this is the example, I think, that Hebrews 11 selects from Jacob's life. Jacob is dying with rock-solid trust in the Lord, even though, as Hebrews 11:13 says, he himself hasn't really received the things promised yet, right? Hebrews 11:1 1 describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. As we'll see, <clears throat> excuse me, there are things that Jacob cannot see and there are things that he can. When his grandsons are brought to him, he can barely see them. He cannot see the timing or the exact manner of the way in which God will fulfill his promises. But by faith, he can see the character of God. So knowing what he does know and seeing what he does see, he can trust and bless and worship. He goes out worshiping. It's a powerful testimony of how God's grace saves and transforms. So uh, at the end of the, the prior passage in, in Genesis uh, 47, Jacob um, puts Joseph under oath to bury him with his fathers in his homeland and not in Egypt. And by that point in time, Jacob has been in Egypt with Joseph for 17 years. So 17 years prior to this, they came to Egypt for the relief of the famine. That's how long they've been there. Jacob's now about to pass on. And so we pick up our passage in Genesis 48, uh, verse 1. It's it's kind of an adoption proceeding, right? Jacob is going to to adopt, uh, to some extent, uh, Joseph's sons. So let me begin by reading verses 1 through 7. Uh, Genesis 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, remember, remember after the wrestling match, God renames Jacob Israel. So Israel is Jacob. I'll just, I'll probably use those names interchangeably. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. 
As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan uh, on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So, uh, the, he's, he's pronouncing, Jacob is pronouncing his intention to, to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh here. And uh, in, in his illness, he, he calls Joseph forward to, to kind of conduct these proceedings uh, right at, the, right at the, the last moment of, of his life. And he refers to how God appeared to him at Bethel in Genesis 35. He recounts how God transferred, so, you know, the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, how God transferred those blessings from Isaac to him. The point is that Jacob is the heir of these covenant promises. And he has been given the right to decide to whom they transfer as he departs the earth. This is a very significant moment in the life of the people of, of Israel. Uh, then in verses uh, 8 through 11, let me read that for you. The, the adoption proceedings begin. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me uh, here. And he said, bring them to me, please that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Remember, there's you know decades in which Jacob believes, on the basis of the brother's deception, that Joseph is dead, and that he'll never see him again. So uh, he's rejoicing uh, that, that he does, in fact, have the opportunity to, to see his son again. Um, when he asks the question in verse eight, "Who are these?" it's it's sort of like the the beginning of the of the formal adoption procedure. So, uh, if you've been to a wedding recently, um, at, usually at the outset of a wedding ceremony, the officiant will say, "Who gives this woman to be married to this man?" And then Dad says, "You know, I do, or her mother and I, or, or whatever." That's that's the kind of question. Who who are? It's not he doesn't he's not saying I don't know who my grandsons are, right? He's, he's, he's beginning the, the adoption proceedings. Um, what's interesting is that, is that his physical sight at this point in his life is dim, so that while he knows who they are, he cannot, he cannot really see very well, as was the case with Isaac when he went in to deceive his father, uh, Isaac, out of, out of his brother's blessing. That'll make sense uh, a little bit further on. So, so now that he's adopted the boys as his own, in the main chunk of the remainder of the passage, Jacob begins pronouncing his blessings uh, on, on Joseph's sons. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 12 and 14. We see that he's going to do so with, a, with an expression of crossed hands. Verse 12, then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh, in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So, right, Jacob, Jacob is, is trying to, to position, in light of his dad's old age and weak eyesight, he's trying to position his boys for maximum convenience for dad to put the blessing of the firstborn with the right hand on the oldest son. But that is not what happens. And Joseph is not happy about that. We'll see again more on that 
uh, in a moment. But as Joseph ushers his boys in this direction, Jacob does this maneuver, right? Uh, Verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers and Abraham, uh, excuse me, name my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So this is where we begin to see Jacob's retrospect, retrospective on the God who has saved him and has changed him into who he has become at the end of his life. In the first part of verse 15, Jacob identifies uh, the God of his fathers, right? Abraham and and, and Isaac. In other words, as he's he's invoking this blessing on Joseph's sons, he's invoking the blessing on behalf of the God who has been, in the larger story, faithful in redemptive history a redemptive history that exceeds God's own faithfulness to Jacob himself. It goes back to his faithfulness to his forefathers. In other words, Jacob's story is a little story and a much larger redemptive narrative, right? The story of God's covenant faithfulness. So so the first thing he does is to anchor God's faithfulness to him in the larger context. But then, in the very next expression, the God who's been been my shepherd all my life, Jacob goes on to say, and isn't this so comforting to know? God's not just the God of faithfulness in the big things. And, and so we sort of become incidental details. He's, he's also the God of faithfulness in the little moments of Jacob's life and your life and, and mine. They complement one of the big story and the little story, right? Are both expressions, venues for the expression of God's, God's faithfulness. He has, he's not just overseeing the big picture, but he has specifically shepherded Jacob's own steps. Jacob looks back at the big picture, then he looks back at his own life, and he sees that in his own life as well, he has been lovingly shepherded by God. Which, if we know Jacob's story, is a rather, right, in some ways, stunning thing for him to say. That as he looks back, he sees at every point along the way, given all the trouble that his life has encountered, he sees God's Loving shepherd care. What is that life included? We've mentioned a, a few of the moments already this morning. Um, but in the previous passage, in, in uh, chapter 47, verse 9, Jacob summarizes his life in a conversation with Pharaoh like this. He says, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, few and evil, have been the days of my life. That's one, that's one summary statement of his, right? The, he's, remember, he's born clutching at Esau's heel. It was prophesied of him that as the second born to Isaac, he would nevertheless have preeminence over his brother Esau. And yet, he lived a life in which dad, Isaac, openly loved him less than he loved his brother. He lived in many ways his life as the expression of his old name, Cheater. He was hated and threatened to be murdered by his brother. He has to go on the run. He toils with scheming Laban for years. He has marital discord, 
right? And deception leading him into a marriage with a woman he did not intend or think he was going to be married to in the first place. He experiences the death of his beloved wife, Rachel, in childbirth. He's lost and deceived about whether or not his son Joseph is even alive for over 20 years. He experiences what he thinks is the onset of death because of famine outside the land of promise before the provision is made for him by his long-lost son, Joseph. But here, in our passage, in his final faith-drenched analysis of his own life, he says in all of that, God has been my loving shepherd. Isn't that an amazing retrospective? In other words, even if it didn't feel like love to me at the time, that's exactly what it was, and I see it now. Can you relate? Maybe, maybe some of us have had pain inflicted by others in our lives. Maybe some have done it to ourselves. Retrospective moments like this are wonderfully clarifying, right? It's encouraging to look back and see how God was at work for our good and things that were mystifying to us at the time. And if you can see that now about some of the things that once mystified you, give thanks. Some of us, however, may feel more like we're in the thick of the mystifying fog than in a particular moment of clarity of retrospective insight. So what about you? Are you in a place today where it doesn't necessarily feel like God is being loving? Here's what we need to know. Here's what we want to know. How can we have assurance that we are loved by God even when it hurts? That is a great question. And there is a great answer, even in our passage. It's very powerful. And it ties back into the last passage we looked at when I was with you from from, uh, Genesis 32. You ready for this? Verse 16. Slam dunk certainty right here. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it does mean it's certain. Jacob says, the angel who has redeemed me from... All evil, bless the boys. Remember this guy? It's a reference back to Genesis 32, right? Is it Esau coming to fight? Is it an angel of the Lord? Remember, he can't see his face in the clear light of day and live. We saw at that point in time this passage from Hosea 12, which tells us in verse 4 that he, Jacob, strove with the angel of the Lord and prevailed both weeping and seeking his favor. This this angel, this God, is the one who redeemed him from all evil. Jacob's Redeemer is the one who made good his debt. It was a debt unpayable by Jacob. Like your debt and mine are unpayable before the Lord, and the angel of the Lord, this Redeemer, paid it all. How did he do it? You guys remember? He lost so Jacob could win. He paid the debt at the point of Jacob being left with nothing but humble, dependent faith. This God-man, right, this angel redeemer, 
against whom Joseph strove was his redeemer because he rescued him from his biggest problem. His biggest problem wasn't Esau. Like you and me, his biggest problem was himself. His own personal sin. Jacob says, as he's looking back over his life, he says, the blow that crushed my hip and hurt my pride the most was a surgical strike by the one who loved me best. And Jacob has come to the place of recognizing that if he can trust God for that redemption, then he can walk with him through every other trial as well. It did not feel loving at the moment that his hip caved in. But it was the most loving thing that God could do for him. He delivered him from himself, and Jacob sees that clearly now. Does that sort of redemption hurt? Yes, it does. It very well may. Can it be scary? Sure. Because sheep don't see all that the shepherd sees. Shepherd love is often confusing to the sheep. Because a sheep does not always know what's best. Mom, for example, does not take the bottle away from the little one in order to starve him or her, but to teach the little one to take solid food. Good luck, however, trying to explain that to the fussy 18-month-old. Or I, I, It's been a long time since we weaned a child. I don't remember when you do it, but when, you know, just I'm throwing out numbers. You get the point, though, right? Jacob says... He knows because he's experienced the redemption that he has needed the most. So how can we know that God is loving his children with shepherd love even when it hurts? If Jacob had a blessing, we have a better one. We have a redeemer. Clearer even than the foreshadow of this person Jacob could not originally discern, right? Think of John 10. We're not going to turn there now, but it might be a good passage to read later on this afternoon. A good shepherd who laid down his life so that you and I could be his sheep. He paid our unpayable debt. I like how 2 Corinthians 8 puts it. Verse 9, Though he was rich, speaking of Jesus, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He lost, so we could win. And Jesus lost in the most costly manner imaginable, right? He made himself nothing and humbled himself to the point of obedience, even to death on a cross. We could not and never have been more perfectly loved than we've been loved by him. Similarly to Jacob then, if he can be trusted in our lives for that, he can be trusted for everything else, even when we don't know what the particulars of tomorrow look like. We can be assured because of his proven shepherd love that even his heart is good for his sheep. So, uh, Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob's not done yet. He's, he's mostly been reflecting backwards as he pronounces the blessing on his grandsons. Uh, but now, towards the end of the, of the passage here, he's, he's going to start 
uh, looking forward, right? We'll pick it up in verse <coughs> 17. So, right, we said J- uh, Joseph is, thinks he's helping out, helping out dad by ushering the boys uh, in, in the sense that the firstborn will get the blessing of the firstborn. Dad didn't do that. He crossed his hands, and so Joseph's a little upset. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. In other words, this isn't a mistake. I know what I'm doing, right? He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. All right, so right, interesting you know, ceremony, and they do things differently than we do, but... What's going on here? So Jacob has been looking back uh, over, over a life in which God's blessings have crossed up Jacob's agenda. Okay? God has been good to him, but he's been good to him precisely in crossing Jacob's will, his ways, and his agenda. And now Jacob has come to the point in his life, right? This, this frustrated him. But now he sees it as mercy, right? And he's going to pass that blessing on. So he comes to the point where the transfer of blessing crosses up Joseph's expectations about the way things should be done, proper convention, right? The, the right-hand blessing, right? Joseph assumes that Jacob is mistaken. He tries to redirect. He tries to intervene. Jacob has pur- purposely reached with the crossing of hands for the extension of blessing to the younger son's hand. Jacob says, I know exactly what I'm doing, son. And more importantly, the shepherd knows exactly what he's doing. I know the shepherd well. He doesn't see as the world sees. I don't really see as the world sees any longer either. This fascinating. When you think about how many, many years prior to this, how, how Jacob tried to take the blessing by deceiving his dad and, and thieving, as it were, from Esau. He's passing it on in a very different manner than he once tried to take it, right? He once lived by scheming. He once lived by reliance on his own wisdom. He's living by faith in future grace. He is rooted in a certainty that comes not from reliance on one's own wits, but from knowing the good shepherd. In any case, uh, Joseph's reaction to the crossed hands is time for Jacob to pass on one more object lesson in in what this faith looks like. So at at this point... He's, he's basically communicating, Joseph is. Because remember, I mean, we, we've, skipped over, we've skipped over the part of the story where, where God has allowed some very difficult things to happen to Joseph. Being betrayed by his brothers, right? Falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Egyptian prison. Okay. You can almost, 
Okay, and, and I, this is, I think this will be helpful because there's so many parents of young children here. And boy, this hits, I, I, I get this, I feel this. You can almost see as Joseph is interacting with his dad at this moment, and almost see Joseph go, you know what? I've followed the shepherd long enough to be okay and trust him when he allows trouble into my life. But it's another thing altogether if you try to do that to my kids. Feel that way, mom and dad, sometimes? Uh, okay, I'm good. I'm, you know, we've walked together. I'm good with, just don't do it to my boys. Don't cross up my girls. You almost, right? It's, you almost see that written on his forehead, right? And Jacob says, effectively, I'm not wrong about crossing my hands. I know what I'm doing, right? I'm not, I'm not blind and, and uh, unaware. But more importantly, Joseph, God isn't wrong about crossing your will for your boys. After all, in God's economy, his ways are not the world's ways. We learn through the story of Scripture again and again, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. David to defeat Goliath, the foolish to shame the wise, the humility of a manger rather than the opulence of a palace, the first to be last, victory through defeat, preeminently through the foolishness of the cross. So as Jacob knowingly frustrates Joseph's agenda for his boys, he, Jacob, is exemplifying that the good shepherd is to be trusted when he undoes our own agendas for ourselves and even those we, right, perhaps love and cherish the most deeply. Again, parents, I imagine you have felt that way before and you might feel that way again. I can take the hard, just don't do it to them. Now, again, Joseph has come a long, long way himself. The trial now concerns not him but his sons. He thinks, I've got plans for them. I would like those, I, I would like those plans not to be derailed. Uh, years ago, uh, in 2013, um, there was a family in our church uh, where a wonderful, godly husband uh, from the world's uh, perception, died far too young and left behind a widow and, uh, at that time, five small children, young children. And I remember um, the, the process of, of, of grieving and walking with uh, this young widow and her, and her young family and a conversation, I don't know how many months it was after her husband's passing. Uh, his name was Jeff. Her name was Leah. And there was a group of us just, you know, checking in with her after one Sunday, ser Sunday worship service. How are you doing? How can we pray for you? How can we, you know, help you with the, the kids? And, and so she was all through tears. Uh, wow, I've... I've yeah, Jeff, he's an important guy in my life, too. I'm very thankful for him. Uh, and the, and the uh, example they left his family, even after he passed away. And I, I remember a, a very distinct conversation 
had to be so hard. I mean, right, because she, she's grieving as the wife of a, of a beloved husband. And she's also carrying grief on behalf of her children who lost a dad, some of whom it just doesn't, right, you can't explain at some of the ages they were. And I remember uh, in that conversation, she wasn't saying it to me, she was just kind of saying it to the group who was checking in on her, but uh, for, it's just, you know, it's almost 10 years now, it still stuck with me. She said, I have to trust, talking about her children, that God is writing their story too. passing the test <laughs> so hard right i mean she she knows right she knows she can't she she doesn't she's not she's represents the good shepherd in their lives but she's not the good shepherd so she can't meet every need and solve every problem and 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 so she what does she cast she's on she's completely dependent on the fact that the lord who's been faithful in her story is going to be faithful in their story too and and when you wonder how can we be confident of that? We look at the cross and we go, okay, that's, he handled the big one, right? So her story, Leah Peterson's story, <coughs> smells like Genesis 48. It smells like Hebrews 11. Courage is my faith. More broadly, uh, <coughs> here's the point. Many, and, 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 and we, we, we struggle with this, ourselves sometimes, don't we? Would like to have a God, or would like to have God in our lives, but, but not at the expense of a divine disturbance that might turn our lives upside down and disrupt our wonderful plan for our lives. Right? Don't disrupt the order of the firstborn, Joseph says, which is interesting, he himself not being the firstborn, and neither is Jacob. Don't disrupt my plan for a gospel of Peace and quiet, we might wonder sometimes, right? When the children require parenting after 10 p.m. and thought you were entitled to a good night's rest and you're not getting one. We find our will crossed by God's. That may be one of the most difficult tests of faith for a child of God, right? Will we still follow? We still trust when that means the loss of control the loss of a perceived sense of autonomy, the loss of the right to dictate what the good life should look like for us. We trust that he is good when he says to us, not your will, but mine be done. However difficult this lesson may be, it's also necessary, not only for Jacob, but for us as well, because if we're not rescued from ourselves, at the end of the day, we're not free at all. So from the lessons of hindsight, Jacob is teaching Joseph how to hold his future plans loosely. Not only because he doesn't really have control anyway, but because the good shepherd has proven that he can be thoroughly trusted with a far better agenda than you and I could ever engineer for our own lives, right? Whatever agenda we would arrange for our lives, it isn't enough. Right? It's too small. It's too small of a kingdom. It has too small of a king or a queen at the center of the story. It's not enough. Not only do we lack control, but we don't want enough. So, so, so Jacob's parting comment then in verses 21 and 22. It's not, I mean, it seems like it's just a kind of a parting comment, but it's not a throwaway. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die. 
but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And that's the end of uh, Genesis 48. So, so Jacob promises that though he's about to die, the God of covenant faithfulness will be with his people. He will bring to pass in his time the completion of his promises. And that's demonstrated, right, in the promise to Joseph of this little mountain slope. Seemingly insignificant. It's, it's not completely insignificant, right? Just like at the end of chapter 47, this is an indication that Joseph and ultimately the people of God will not make Egypt their land of permanent residence. God will make good his promises. They will be brought all the way home. In Christ, we will be brought all the way home. And so as Jacob is dying, we wind up right back at Hebrews 11.21 with a forward-looking faith and future grace grounded in God's big story of redemption and his personal story of not just to the flock broadly, but to the individual sheep that compose the flock that has been drenched in the proven trustworthiness of the shepherd. Or to put it differently, we could say, many things about tomorrow I still don't seem to understand, but that's not of ultimate significance because I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. This act of death, this is an act of deathbed worship, if there ever was one. It is a picture of finishing well by faith. At the end of the day, it's not a confusing example to fit in the context of Hebrews 11. It's a very fitting one. And in God's kindness, the end of Jacob's story is told here to show Joseph and to show us the way. Perhaps... Uh, perhaps something in the, the message this morning stirred up uh, a, a, a grief, um, a concern, a, a, a wondering about the future, about how God has been faithful or is being faithful in your life. Um, if that's the case, I, I know we're, we're moving into a time of a Lord's Supper celebration, which is a great way to fix our eyes on the greatest faithfulness of our shepherd redeemer of all. Um, but But if it would help to to talk to someone or to ask for prayer after the service. I, of course, will be around uh, for a little bit as will your pastors and leaders. And uh, if we can um, offer encouragement in, in that respect, we, I, I know everyone would be delighted to do so. So with that in mind, let me just close in prayer and then we'll move on to the remainder of our service. Heavenly Father, um, <clears throat> we're grateful that we can call you both of those terms. You're both heavenly, therefore powerful, you're fatherly and therefore tender. Uh, you sent your son Jesus as the good shepherd who paid the ultimate price, certainly crossing our will, but doing so for our good. And we're thankful that in Christ we can see that. We're thankful that in Christ we have experienced that and that we have received that. And I pray that we would drink of that richly now as we move to the eating and the drinking and the celebration of uh, the Lord's Supper. Continue to encourage our faith, Lord, this day, moving on into this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name.